0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you, and enjoy. Thank you, choir. Thank you for leading us well. Uh, Grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 26. It will be on the screen, but I always love it when you have your Bible. So if you didn't bring one, there's a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible. Let that be our gift to you. We just want you to read God's Word. We want you to know God's Word, study it, and let the the Word of God transform you, as we know it can and will. So please do that. Matthew 26, verse 6 through 13. That's what we'll be focusing on today. Now let me tell you where we are. We're taking a break for a few weeks from the book of Exodus, and we'll pick up the book of Exodus in November. And as we come back to the book of Exodus, we'll be looking at the actual Exodus, where they come out of Egypt into the promised land. It's going to be a great time, and it's perfect for Thanksgiving. And You'll say, how is that perfect for Thanksgiving? Just wait and see. Just wait and see. Okay, but we're taking a break for just a few weeks, looking at the topic of stewardship now, when I mention stewardship, uh, it always gets either A, quiet, or B, squiggly, and you kind of squirm in your seats a little bit, and, and that's what I hope that won't happen today uh, or this series, because really when we're talking about stewardship, stewardship does involve money, but stewardship is so much bigger than money. And so we're trying to take a look at what does the Bible say about the idea of stewardship and not just look at the idea of money. Here's why we don't want to just want to talk about money because Jesus, Jesus, we can be good givers, I guess, or, or tithers. He can have our money, but if He does not have our heart, our money is not pleasing. And so what we want for your life and what we want for each one of us as a church uh, corporately, is we want to be good stewards because when we have a heart, of stewardship, all the other things will fall in line. I will be a generous giver. I will be a cheerful giver. But not only giving, I will begin to look at what I would quote my life as not my life. My talents is not my talents. My spiritual gifts is not my spiritual gifts. For my purpose, we would not look at my time, but I would say, okay, God, all of my life is yours. How do you want me to steward it? How do you want me to take care of it? See, stewardship really isn't about the 10% that we give to God. It's really about the 90% that's left over. And so I want to look at stewardship differently, okay? So let me define a few terms real fast. We've been doing this. I, Mr. James, it's up there. We're going to define three terms. Three terms, key terms up on the screen, okay? Okay. The three key terms that I want to define really quickly are tithing. And remember, tithing comes from Genesis chapter 14, before the Levitical priesthood, before the tabernacle, before the sacrificial system was invoked or um, brought about by God, tithing was introduced. And so tithing is before the law, before the law, okay? Two, generosity. Generosity is a a willingness to share with others that involves personal sacrifice. So generosity is, is different than a tithe. It's a different heart from the tithe. And if you read the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts in 2, 4, 5, you'll see these pictures of generosity and a picture of not great generosity. And then if you read the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you'll see an incredible outpouring and in picture of generosity. So the third one I want you to see is stewardship. Stewardship is the act of wisely managing God's stuff in a way that's pleasing to the master. Stewardship is, at, uh, uh, excuse me, wisely managing God's stuff in a way that's pleasing to him. Now, that is our life. That is our goal, that we manage God's stuff in a way that's pleasing to him. And so, with that in mind, our relationship to money, the way we view it, will always impact our relationship to God. So the way I view it, my attitude toward it will always impact my relationship to God. In fact, my attitude toward money is actually a reflection of my relationship with God. If I always am discontented and I always want more, what does that say that I think about the Lord? Well, you're not a really great provider, are you? You haven't given me what I need, have you? Right? And if we're always looking for more stuff, maybe we're saying about the Lord, You are not beautiful enough, satisfying enough. You are not my delight. You are not my joy. You are not my treasure, so I will look for my treasure in other things. It's always a reflection of what we believe about God. So I want to look up on the screen. We've got a stewardship progression that I introduced last week, and I want to show these four slides one more time. They're circles, Mr. James. There we go. The first progression of stewardship is number one the self-absorbed owner. We looked at this last week and the self-absorbed owner says it's all mine. 100% of it belongs to me and I have full authority over my stuff. Now that's the self-absorbed owner and if if that strikes you a little bit or convicts you a little bit just let the Holy Spirit do his work. The second one is the obligated owner and that obligated owner says 100% of it is mine but I feel obligated to do something for God. I feel obligated to give Him something. Now, these two are not where we want to be. These two are not where we want to be. And so remember, it's a progression that we, as we walk with the Lord, as we delight in Him, as we lay our gold in the dust like last week, as we look at the Lord and find our treasure in Him, we move up this progression. As we mature in Christ, we become more like Him with our stewardship. The third one is, is the obedient owner. 10% belongs to God, the rest of it belongs to me. And I, I will obey God, what, uh, what God says I should do with my stuff. I'll obey what God says I should do with my stuff. So 10's his, 90's mine, still not the idea of stewardship. And so the, remember... That's not our goal. Many times in church we make that our goal, where we see the 10%, the tithe belongs to Him, and the rest is all mine. And I I just want you to, to remind you that's not our goal. Here's why, because that's exactly where the Pharisees found themselves, and God was not pleased with their heart. It was not about what they gave, but rather the heart of their giving. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, Give them the woes, the seven woes to the Pharisees. And he said, Woe to you. You tithe dill and mint and cumin, yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And so this was not their end goal. Rather, this is a starting point for the believer. Okay? The last one is love inspired steward. Love inspired steward. And this is my goal for you. And it has nothing to do with money, it has to do everything with your heart love-inspired steward says everything that I have is 100% God's. It's on loan to me. He gave it all. Everything in the world belongs to him, comes through him, and is for him. Right? It's all his. It's all on loan. And this is God's goal for every believer. Remember, tithing requires a calculator. Moving a decimal point. From one position to another position. That's tithing. That's that obedient owner. If you find yourself there, great. Praise the Lord. But that's not where God wants you to end. Tithing requires a calculator. But this love-inspired steward requires a conversation with God. A relationship. A living, breathing relationship with God. Where you say, okay God, this is all your stuff. What do you want me to do with your stuff, your time, your resources, your spiritual gifts that you have given to me by grace? How, what do you want me to do as a steward of these things to live in a way that pleases the master? Are you with me, church? So, how do I become this love-inspired steward? And let me, I'll just recap the three weeks real fast. Number one, by recognizing that everything belongs to him. Well, Ryan, you don't know how hard I work. Don't forget Deuteronomy chapter 8 that says He even gives us the ability to produce wealth. Well, Ryan, I work really hard. Who gave you the strength to work really hard? Well, Ryan, I came up with this idea. Who gave you that ability? Who gave you the mind that you have, the body that you have? Who gave you the ability to wake up in the morning for goodness sakes? God did. Remember, everything comes from Him. It belongs to Him. And it is for Him. So the second way that I do that, I become a love-inspired steward, is by learning to lay gold in the dust. If you'll remember last week, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go, number one, to Facebook. You can watch it on Facebook. Or two, you can go to our website or our podcast, and you can listen to last week's sermon out of Job chapter 22, where, where God says, if you will lay your gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty. And when I learn to delight myself in God, that he's my treasure, all of the other stuff in the world is easier to steward. And three, this is where we're going to be today, that realizing that faithful stewardship of what belongs to God is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. So we're going to read this story again in just a moment. We're going to walk through it, but I want to just remind you that this story is mentioned in all four of the Gospels and it becomes a fuller story as we read each of the Gospels. But this story, Jesus says of this story, wherever this Gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she did, her act of worship will be proclaimed also. Isn't that an incredible statement? What she did for Jesus was such an impactful, powerful moment that Jesus Himself said, don't leave this out when you write it down. Are you with me? Isn't that powerful? So, grab your Bible. Chapter 26, verse 6 and 7. First thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Isn't that good news? Come on, somebody. Any sinners out there need Jesus as a friend? He says, look at this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So two things I want you to know. Is two people. It's really all about, we've made this all about the lady, the unnamed lady. We're not exactly sure who this is from Matthew's perspective. John says that it could be Mary, Lazarus's sister. Now, here we make it all about this lady, but where is Jesus? At the house of Simon the who? The leper! Now, I have a question. Is that kosher? Is it kosher for Jesus to be at the house of Simon the leper? Of course not! I mean, in fact... The leper was to be separated outside of community and was to walk around. And the book of Leviticus declares that anywhere the leper went, he was to shout out before him, Unclean! Unclean! Just so people could keep their distance. And Jesus is in his house. Now, the book of Luke tells us that this Simon the leper is also Simon a Pharisee. Which makes it doubly interesting. Interesting. So Jesus is at the house of Simon, who is a Pharisee, and he has leprosy. And this woman comes up to him. Now, we don't know much about this woman from Matthew's uh, gospel, but from the other gospels, we learn Luke calls her a woman of the city. Now, you could use your imagination, right? Uh, And and probably imagine what, what Luke is trying to hint at. She's a woman of the city, if you get what I'm saying. Now, we're not exactly sure of the nature of her sin from this text, but whatever it is, her reputation precedes her. She's a woman of the city, and that's all it has to say. Now, here's the scandal here. The scandal here is that Jesus is in the presence of sinful people. Aren't you glad that Jesus is not afraid of our sin? He didn't look at you and say, Ew, Shoe. Now He comes into the presence of sinful people. A leper who is a Pharisee and a woman of the city. Now just let your mind think about this for a minute. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has allowed sinners to approach Him. That's good news. and, and So just ponder. Ponder for a moment the, the beauty and absolute scandal of that thought. Since the beginning... God has revealed Himself as holy, perfect, beyond comparison, untainted, unstained, flawless, in all of His character, in all of His ways, and mankind stood in opposition to that nature and found out very quickly that we are sinful, flawed, and blemished, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And we found ourselves there, and since the beginning, our sin has separated us From this holy, wonderful, majestic, mighty, perfect God, our sin has separated us, and now there is an impossible distance between us and God, a great chasm fixed that we cannot cross by ourselves, so Jesus crossed it. Isn't that good news? I mean, mankind has for all eternity passed been trying to work their way to heaven and what Christianity says is that you can't work your way to heaven so heaven left heaven to come to you heaven is not heaven without God but heaven left heaven Jesus left heaven to come to us isn't that such good news that's why it says that he came to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners he came, Luke 19, to seek and save that which is lost. Ephesians 2, now you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, Jesus, we have access to the Father. Isn't that good? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He's a friend of sinners. I thought we were talking about stewardship. Just give me a minute. Because all the rest of the text hinges off of these, these few truths. Very important truths. And so friend, I, I just want to encourage you. If you think your sin is so horrible that God can't forgive you, I hope that today you learn differently.
1: That is
0: a form of pride. Pride. There's two kinds of pride that are damning to our souls. One kind of pride says, I don't need Jesus. I don't need a savior. Some of us fall into that category where we think we're good enough. And others fall into the other category, which says, my sin is too great for Jesus. And both of those prides are troublesome to the soul. So, today, let's look at it. Second thing I want you to see is the woman's actions. Her worship is costly and beautiful. Now, let's look. Verse 7 A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. What an incredible thought. Okay, verse 7. Uh, here in Matthew, Matthew doesn't give us much more than an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Now, Mark, the book of Mark says that it was uh, uh, an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and the ointment was pure nard and it was worth about 300 denarii. Now, denarii, I don't use that term a whole lot. We don't talk about denarii a whole lot, but denarii is an amount basically equal to a laborer's wage for a day. So, Let's use a big round number for a second and say the yearly salary of a wage or a a laborer is $50,000. Just round number. If that's true, this nard, 300 denarii, 300 days of that 365 is worth approximately $41,095. Almost a year's salary this woman brings. She cracks this jar open. Now here's what we need to understand. that This jar didn't have a screw-off lid where she could unscrew the top. Pour a little out and go. I'm not going to waste the whole thing on him. Put the top back on. No, this jar had to be broken. And when she broke the jar, there was no putting it back in. You remember the illustration of toothpaste? You've probably used this with your children at some point in time or another. You say, "All right, squeeze. Let's see how fast you can squeeze all the toothpaste out." Right. Now try to get it back in there. You can't. It's impossible. We probably use that about our words, you know, with our children. Your words are like that toothpaste. You can get them out real fast, but you can't suck them in fast enough. Now, this was like that. Once it was spilled out, once it was poured out, it was, there was no turning back. And she poured it on Jesus. Now, here's what Luke says. Luke says she was weeping. Luke says she's weeping. She's approaching Jesus from behind and she's weeping and she's got great tears. What would cause these tears? Well, one, one thought is, well, her brokenness, her sinfulness, her story, her past, the things that she might have done last night to get that alabaster flask of ointment. Who knows what her story is? So. Could it be embarrassment, humility, brokenness? Of course, it could be those things. I'm sure those are running through her head as she's pouring out this ointment on the Savior's feet. Oh, I don't belong here. But I'm sure there's something else. I, I think, I believe that she is anointing Jesus with this perfume as tears of joy and appreciation fall from her face. I believe that with all of my heart. This woman is in the presence of the God-man and she saw the depth of her sin and then she lifted up her eyes to the all-sufficient Savior who sat before her at the table and she was overwhelmed with her sin but with the gratitude and joy of what the Savior could do for her. And she pours it out on him. Luke and John both say that she undid her hair wept on his feet, and dried his feet with her what? Now that's that's scandalous also, isn't it? Uh, Pastor Ken's been teaching us on Wednesday nights about the contentious lady in 1 Corinthians, and that idea of letting down one's hair in public was shameful, and it was grounds for divorce, But in the presence of Jesus, she didn't care what was socially acceptable. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that the hair of a woman is her glory. So I just want you to see what she's doing here. She's got her greatest treasure and her glory. And what does she do with them? She lays her greatest treasure, breaks it and pours it out over her Savior, and then she takes her glory and lays it in the dust. She wets his feet with her tears. She wipes her feet or wipes Jesus' feet with her glory. All that's valuable to her is spent on Jesus. And she doesn't do it begrudgingly. She does it in joy. She trades her treasure for Christ. Now, she didn't waste her treasure. Don't miss that. The disciples bring that up in a minute. She didn't waste it. She did not waste her treasure. Her actions really show that she found her treasure. And it's not in a bottle. In fact, her treasure is reclining at the table. Now she, she might have spent it, but there at the table she gained something far greater. She spent her treasure and gained her reward. Don't miss that. Don't, don't forget Job 22, verse 24 to 25 from last week. If you'll lay your gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold and precious silver. Then, then, then you will delight yourself in the Almighty. And this is exactly a picture of what she has done here in this passage. Luke tells us that she kissed Jesus' feet. Now, if it wasn't scandalous and weird already, for the onlookers here comes a woman of the city takes her year's salary pours it out on jesus lays her glory on the dust of his feet and now she kisses his feet listen i have a rule at seneca baptist church there's no kissing of feet at seneca baptist church okay it's just i don't know what to do with that exactly now kissing kissing is this intense word of showing great intimacy and affection and in Luke 15 you see the prodigal or the father kiss the prodigal son when he returns but here you see the prodigal kissing the savior's feet you see her coming and lavishing her love on the redeemer and i the ones looking on are just appalled luke says that simon is going, doesn't he know who she is? If he really was the Messiah, he would know. Gosh, he can't be. They they are appalled. The perfume, the hair, the kisses, everything about her actions was offensive in their eyes. But oh, how it pleased the Savior. John, the book of John in chapter 12 tells us that now the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And, and how beautiful is it? This house, this spiritual house that we're sitting in today is now filled with the fragrance of this lady's perfume. That's how beautiful this act was, this worship was. Are you with me? Do you see it, church family? He says it, 2613, look at it. It says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Her love for her Redeemer caused her to be bold in her expression of worship. It is, it's just beautiful. Her worship was not begrudging. It's motivated by an overwhelming understanding of what Jesus had done for her. There was no cost too great for her worship or for her to worship the one who's able to forgive her sins and transform her life. Listen, church family, the more clearly we see what Jesus did for us, the more willing we are to lay ourselves down for him. That's why Romans 12:1 and 2 says, "Therefore, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God, because of all the mercies of God that he has lavished upon you, therefore lay your lives down as a living sacrifice." This is your logical, your rational, your spiritual worship. To God. What? To lay your life down. And oh, this lady has given us a marvelous picture of what that looks like. To lay your life down as worship. I want to encourage you. We're talking about stewardship today, but let me stop. Let Let me just talk about worship. If we think to ourselves, I can't worship today because of X, Y, or Z that is not saying anything about X or Y or Z, but really it's a reflection of my heart, isn't it? Jesus is so worthy of our worship and it has nothing to do with our circumstances and everything to do with what He accomplished for us. Well, that's not my kind of song. I've never heard that song before. Do you know when we get to heaven, it says we're going to sing a new song? You might not like the worship in heaven if you can't get along with a new song. Okay, so let me come back. So I want you to see that stewardship is worship. Stewardship is worship. Now, she was a steward of what she had been entrusted with. How do I know that? She had not wasted this perfume anywhere else. She could have gone to sell it. I mean, man... I have two children in my home who are very different, okay? Miles, every time he gets money in his pocket, what do you want to do with it? Spend it. Did you hear that? Out of the mouths of babes. He gets it from his dad, okay? And the second one is Sutton. And he takes after mama because Sutton, when he gets a dollar in his pocket, it's staying there, and you're going to have to give me 17 reasons why I should spend it. Miles doesn't need a reason. It's in there. That's why I should spend it. Now, the two of them are vastly different. And this lady could have been like Miles and me. We get a dollar in our pocket and we go, ooh, what I could do with that? No, this lady was more like the second. I'm going to save this. I'm going to steward this. And she had the perfect opportunity to steward it. And she stewarded it in such a way that it was worshiped to her Savior. So look at the two questions we see. Now, verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? How many of you, let's just be honest, if you were in that room, you would have gone, Man, that was very wasteful. Very wasteful. $50,000 right down the drain. Look look at what they say. That money, you could have sold that thing, and, and you could have done great for the poor. You could have given it for the poor. Why this waste? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that, that, that cause, wouldn't of selling it and giving it to this been so much more pleasing to God? Wouldn't that have been the better sacrifice? I want you to note something. I want you to note something. Look at verse 14. Now, this is not on the screen, so this is where that whole Bible thing in front of you comes important, okay? Verse 14. After this story, it says, "...then..." Then, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. You know what's interesting? Both um, Matthew here and Mark directly connect this extravagant, costly worship to Judas's betrayal. Both of them. John goes a step further. And he says that, that when this happened, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him, and it was because not because he took good care of God's money, but rather he was a thief, and whatever was in the pocketbook, he used to help himself to. It's just funny. It's interesting how people's attitude toward money impacted their attitude toward Jesus. Remember, our attitude toward money is our, a reflection of our relationship with god and for judas this was the final straw that was wasteful it's was wasteful they should be better stewards he thought because he didn't see worship as important money was what god used for judas to betray jesus and it reminds you mark 8 where it, that question is asked what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and do what forfeit his soul you want to know what married people fight over? Money. You want to know what tends to break relationships, business relationships, arguments about? Money. You want to know what churches have the tendency to fight over? Money. It's funny how Satan uses the details to get us to shift our eyes from what is really important to God. And what's interesting is it all belongs to God, but somehow Satan can get in there. It's called mission drift. Anytime where we ignore the mission for something else, we quarrel and we lose sight of what really matters, which which is we want to become worshipers. We want to become better stewards. We want to become disciples who are growing in Christ likeness and we want to make disciples. And anytime we forget that for anything else, we have drifted. Come back. So the first question is why this waste? Second question, look at what Jesus says. Verse 10. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? So he asked a question in response to their question. Why do you trouble the woman? For two reasons why you shouldn't trouble her. Number one, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. And two, for, verse 11, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that stewardship is not about a cause. It's about Christ. Stewardship, I'll say that again. Stewardship is not about a cause, it's about Jesus Himself. If ever I give to something, overlooking the one, not understanding that this is worship to Him, I've missed the mark. It's not about a cause, it's about Christ. It's not about a church, it's not about a fund, it's not about a project. Rather, it's all a worshipful experience, or uh, uh, it's a worship to Jesus Himself. Stewardship is not primarily a transaction between you and the church or you and a nonprofit organization. Stewardship is primarily an act of worship of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as I lay everything down at His feet. That's what stewardship is. Primarily, this is you and God. Primarily, this is your heart and his heart. Primarily, this is you worshiping him through what he has put in your uh, possession for a short time. So the way that I use the resources that God has loaned me is an act of costly, beautiful worship to Christ Jesus. The way you use God's finances, the time that God has given you on earth, the way that you use the spiritual gifts that God has given you, and you are all gifted. I pray that you'd continue to come on Wednesday night, and if you haven't come, please come, because we're learning about who God has made us, and that He has made us these things for His kingdom, for His mission, and we are to steward them and use them well. Everything you have, your home, your car, these are all on loan to you. God's name is actually on the deed. And one day you'll have to give an account to how you used it. And the question is, will I have used it in a way that has made worshipers of the nations, that has brought people into an intimate knowledge of Jesus, or have I used it in a way that has really just benefited me? Let me come back. Worship is stewardship. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship or your logical, your rational service. This is what we do. Because of what Christ has done I worship Him with all that I have. Are you with me? I love, I love, I love what what, uh, Jackson said just a few minutes ago. Worship is not about a genre, but worship is a gene in the DNA of the redeemed. That was so so good. That's exactly what we're talking about here. As I close, I, I just want you to hear it. The way that we steward these things is worshipful. It's all about Jesus. I'll end with these two passages from Second Corinthians 8 and then 9. It says, talking about their stewardship or their generosity, it says this, and this, not as we expected, chapter 8, verse 5, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's called worship. Then, by the will of God to us. That's generosity and worship and stewardship is they gave themselves first to the Lord. Have you ever given your heart and soul and mind and strength to the Lord? Have you ever embraced like this woman did your Redeemer, whose name is Jesus? Jesus. I'm not asking, have you ever prayed a prayer? Have you ever walked an aisle? But have you ever laid your life down because of His great mercy to you as a living sacrifice? If not, you can today. And then in 2 Corinthians 9.13, it says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. So, there's a group receiving a gift and they will glorify God. Isn't it funny how the worship of God, the stewardship of believers will bring about worship of others. Because of your submission that comes from your confession to the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others. Today I want to encourage you. Jesus is worthy of your alabaster flask. Being broken and poured out and your life being laid down. He is worthy of your worship, and no worship is too extravagant for our Savior. And, church family, friends, I want to encourage you that everything you own is to be stewarded with worship in mind. This is an act of worship. Let's pray.